0: Hello, I'm Viv Groskop, writer, agony aunt, firm believer in the power of mulled wine, and this is We Are Women. We Are Women is brought to you by Mint Velvet. It's all about the experience of being a woman. An experience which seems to be more and more in the spotlight, given the way the news is at the moment. But forget the headlines. Here is where we talk about our reality. The good, the bad, and we don't shy away from the ugly either. Each edition we focus on a particular theme and this time we're going to be talking about tradition, when it's wonderful, how it can be woeful, because there is no escaping the fact that Christmas is now just weeks away, so we will be touching on some festive traditions too, not forgetting my gold blouse, which you might be able to hear rustling in the background. Coming up in this edition we'll be hearing from Grace Dent.
1: My sickness is eBay, my happiest times. Uh, sitting out bidding other women in 20 pence incremental steps shouting take that bitch from amber butchart so through those alterations and through those changes
2: you start to see the sort of life story of a garment and how it touches other people's lives
3: and from kate watson smythe the world is a little bit uncertain at the moment. People are nervous about what's going on. So, we're now looking very much at velvet sofas and jewel colours and making it look warm and cosy a place where we feel safe. But before that,
0: I want to introduce my very special studio guest, Jen Brister, an incredibly talented stand-up comic and favourite of mine. She has taken smash hit shows to the Edinburgh Fringe. She has just graced our TV screens in the comedy Rite of Passage that is Live at the Apollo. And she is the author of a very funny column for the magazine Standard Issue, all about being the other mother, which I'll let her explain. Welcome, Jen Brister. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Viv. But you haven't worn a festive blouse. I didn't realize that Can was you hear part me? of Rustling. The, I know. I
4: mean, I, it's a shame. This is a, a podcast. People can't see just how festive it is. You look absolutely. Baubly. you look I great do.
0: that's a good word for it actually yeah, yeah. yeah. it's quite black it's a very blousy
4: blouse it's a very blousey <laughs> blouse I would love to have the confidence to wear a blouse like that mm. now
0: think. this is our this is our traditional moment and in front of us we have got the greatest Christmas tradition ever oh my which goodness. is our producer Kate's uh, Christmas fudge I know it's in, would you like to try some well I've already had some, had I, some I've, already? I've very much enjoyed it I'm just gonna I, try some now that's so good. Yeah, we're yeah. wall-to-wall fudge here. So I'm now rustling and I'm and chewing crunching fudge. fudge. Yeah, it's great. But we have got this rather fabulous festive hamper.
4: What else have you okay, got? So
0: we've got... Um, panettone. A, a panettone. That's very um,
4: festive. Yeah, we
0: need to get What have you into got? Um, Jandu, yeah?
4: Um, yes, I love I'll have those. some of those. That's that That's like hazelnut chocolate, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, you've done really well here. That's not bad, by, by the end of it, we'll be diabetic. There's so much sugar here.
0: <laughs> Very good. Now, do you have traditions that you cling to around this time of year, Jan?
4: For me, because I have a Spanish mum, we have a tradition of celebrating Christmas Eve because that's what they do in Spain. So Christmas Eve for my mum is a bigger day than christmas day my mum is one of those people that's just hand-picked the bits of the tradition she wants so we've gone we're very spanglish <laughs> she's, so she's we still get the presents on christmas day but we have the big meal on christmas eve it's it's all a bit up topsy-turvy when I, I explain it to friends they're like that sounds weird it is weird but it's normal to me so
0: so what do you do that is spanish what spanish part remains
4: well, as far as I know, the Spanish bit that remains is that the, 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 the meal, the big meal, is on Christmas Eve and we have it in the evening. My mum will make a massive paella and then she has lots of little tapas and things and we we'll Now just sit we're getting into get it. Drunk. So you eat a paella, basically. That's special. Spanish <laughs> We just have a paella and we just say, we've done it, we nailed this Spanish lark, haven't we? <laughs> does the paella, I'm going to say paella, paella. Does the paella have turkey in it?
0: No. no. No, okay. But I mean, it has a bit of chicken in it. She doesn't okay. like turkeys. I love this Spanish take on the Christmas. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, for people who don't know, I
4: mentioned your amazing column, The Other Mother. Uh, tell people about that. It's a column about... Well, it's about just that being the other mother because my um, my girlfriend, my partner, uh, had twins. And so we our, our boys have two mums. And so I'm the other one, the other mother. And so because it was... When Chloe was pregnant, I was, like, trying to find books that were, like... Or anything that was, like, going to be my experience or... uh, Nothing reflected it, so I thought, I'm going to write about it. Was that something that people have actually said to you? Are you the other mother... I tell you what, when your kids it's that that time between zero to twelve months, I'd go out to these mum these mother and baby things, and they'd be like, everyone has had their sharing their war stories of pregnancy and birth, and and then I'd be sitting there going, yeah, duh, got nothing for you there, and they'd be like, how was how, I mean twins? That must have been awful. I was like, yeah, just got nothing. That no, didn't really do anything. So um, I'd get into these awkward conversations where I'd find myself going, I'm I'm the mum, but I'm 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 not that. I'm not that mum, I'm the the other mum. And people would be, like, slightly confused. Uh, (laughs) It's very intrusive when you're a mum anyway. People ask you loads of questions. But when they find out you're not the mum, you're the other mum, they're like... Then the questions get really intrusive. Oh, how did you do that? And and how long did that take? And how expensive was it? And when did you? Where did you do it? You're like, I don't even know your name. Who are you? So um, I started to write about it, and it was quite cathartic.
0: That is really fascinating. And but you were saying that there's probably more in common with that experience oh, than there is that's different, right? Yeah, I mean, because
4: your babies are all doing the same things, aren't they? You know, they're not sleeping. They're then, you know, they don't eat the food that you cook for them. They they they'll they'll poo any which way they want to, and. You know those those things don't change. Um, The fact that we've got two mums instead of a mum and a dad, there are there are differences. I think there because we very much co-parent and it's really fifty fifty. And I think my, the experience of some of the mums that I've met are not you know very much not having that experience. So if anything, I think it's an advantage. Yeah? Mm,
0: it's, yes,
4: exactly. you're not sure. With... No, no.
0: I think it really is. I mean, I wish everybody could have that co-parenting experience. I've spent. Last 15 years, you know, trying to do that with my husband. I mean, he's brilliant. If anything, he's gone too far the other way and I'm barely in the equation. He's like 95% parent and my co-parenting is the other 5%.
4: I do feel for the dads, though, because we are trying to push men into being co-parents and, and taking on that responsibility, but when they turn up at mother and baby groups no one talks to them, they yeah. just sort of stand in the corner with a baby strapped to them looking awkward. I've noticed even I, I thought... I thought I'd be much more empathetic and sort of approach them. And I just think, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, what we do every
0: podcast is to ask our guests a question at the beginning, which we come back to at the end. And this time it is this question. If you could start a new tradition, festive or otherwise, what would it be? So have a think about that and I will have a think about it
4: too. Okay.
0: We also like to set our listeners' questions. And recently we've been asking you what you'd like to achieve before your next birthday. Lots of you tweeted at Mint Velvet or went to the Mint Velvet Facebook page to tell us your birthday goals.
2: Hi, my name is Carolina. I'm an account executive. Before my next birthday, I would love to go
4: back to Australia again.
2: My name is Kazaya and I am a theatre maker, and before my next birthday, I am going to arrange my life so that I only have to work a money job three days a week.
3: My name is Hattie Roykins, and I'm a EA, and before my birthday on Thursday, I'd like to turn up to work on time. (laughs)
0: Thank you, Carolina, Kaziah and Hattie. And please do get in touch and tell us what's on your list. Very shortly we'll be hearing from Grace Dent but first it's time for My Life in Clothes our feature about how our clothes reveal our life stories In a very exciting break with tradition I can reveal that the subject of this month's My Life in Clothes is now joining us in the studio She will be talking not only about her life story but about the lives and stories of many others too because she is the fashion historian Amber Butchart Amber is an Associate Lecturer at the London College of fashion. She's written several books and regularly appears in print on TV, on radio, and in front of live audiences across the globe from Dubai to Moscow. And today she is looking awesome, like a sort of modern day Norma Desmond. <laughs> Welcome, Amber Butchart.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I love that description, modern-day Norma Desmond. I mean,
0: that we have to describe what you're wearing. Well, first of all, you have a beautiful Russet Louise Brooks Bob, which is gorgeous precision cut. And then you're in your trademark turban, mustard
2: yeah. velvet. Mustard velvet, lots of volume going on in the turban, and uh, matching some plastic yellow beads uh, I've got around my neck as well. And talk us through the rest of your outfit. Uh, I have a black polo neck, which I think is a great uh, basis for many, many looks indeed. And then I'm wearing some of my favourite trousers. So I've got a sort of paper bag waist, a dog tooth check, black and white, and then go into a really sort of peg leg tapering at the ankle. Oh,
0: gorgeous. Fabulous. It's
2: wonderful. (laughs) What do clothes mean to you? Well, clothes have always been really important to me not only because I've always really enjoyed dressing up and sort of expressing myself through clothes but because of the stories that they can tell us about other people about culture about society in general so talk us through some of these well the first thing I've got uh, oh that is gorgeous this here is probably the most sort of precious thing that I own this is A Bieber dress. So Bieber was a a brand in the spanned the 1960s and 70s. And this dress in particular belonged to my mum. So ever since I was born, this dress played a really important part in my understanding of my mum's life before I was born basically. It looks like
0: your mum's life before you were born was being Kate Bush.
2: Yeah, which is, you know, (laughs) From this
0: dress.
2: (laughs) I love that. I'll tell her that. (laughs) She'll be very excited to hear that. Uh, So this dress, just to explain it, it's kind of bottle green. It's floor length. It's got tiny covered buttons that go all the way up the top. But then the main thing is these sleeves. It's got the real trademark tight Shoulders that a lot of Bieber designs had, but then it comes out into these flaring medieval style sleeves. So it is incredibly dramatic. And what I also love about this, and one of the things that I think about in the work that I do, is that this dress has been taken up. My mum lent it to a friend of hers who was shorter than her, uh, and she took it up so that she could wear it. She lent it to another friend who actually sewed it up at the top. And so through those alterations and through those changes, you start to see those kind of relationships between women, the giving and sharing of clothes that can be such an important part of friendships and really the sort of life story of a garment and how it touches other people's lives.
0: That's so fascinating. If I had a friend who borrowed my Bieber dress and then altered it, they would not be my (laughs) friend anymore. But obviously your mum is a very nice person. Uh, Anything else in your
2: bag? Yes, I have one other thing. Uh, Speaking of tradition and Christmas traditions, I have brought in a 1950s Christmas jumper. Oh, wow. That is something else. Which is one of a few that I have that I get out at about this time every year.
0: So talk us through this for people who can't see this. uh, I don't want to call it
2: an aberration. (laughs) It's kind (laughs) of beautiful. (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 oh, this is a kind of maroon and bright red pattern jumper that across the chest has uh, woven into the, the pattern of the wool has two reindeer... And a Christmas tree.
0: It looks amazing with your hair, it has to be said. It's Thanks. extraordinary. Thanks very where much. do you think this whole Christmas jumper thing came from? The
2: Christmas jumper, ones like this, originate in um, sort of Nordic and Northern Scottish knitwear, so things like Fair Isle knits. What you see with the kind of Christmas motifs and the Christmas jumper is that it seems to reach peaks of popularity during periods where knitwear is popular anyway anyway. So the 1950s, for example, decades after the Second World War, where there was a big rush to get women back in the home, stop working men's jobs, get back in the home, look after the kids, do the cooking. Uh, Knitwear is a very big part of that look. You have the sweater girl, you have the twin set being developed. So we have a lot of Christmas sweaters from the 1950s. Again, a big moment for the Christmas jumper is the 80s where you have sort of a lot of garish colours and garish patterns and prints on trend anyway. So again, it sort of lends itself to the ugly Christmas sweater.
0: That's so fascinating. I never knew that. I never knew that the whole trend of the 1950s was get back in the home and put a jumper on. <laughs> yes. It's good for you. Um, the other Christmas tradition that I always struggle slightly with, I never know quite where to go with it, is the sparkly dress thing and the sequins where does all of that come from originally and is it a good idea should you really go for it or
2: avoid it like the plague well there's a huge really long history even going back to the tomb of Tutankhamun when his wardrobe was discovered in the tomb there were clothes items that had flat metal discs that had been sewn onto them Um, essentially really early sequins And you see this recurring again and again throughout history across different cultures as well. People just want to make themselves look shiny and sparkly. I think there is a sort of human instinct in that, especially people who want to show that they are in control, that they have power, that they have authority. They want to be blinging. Uh, And, And any advice for managing the sequins over Christmas, Amber? Well, again, I just, you know, Christmas is a time of excess. It's a time of parties. It's a time of extravagant clothing, just go for it, do it with metallic eyeshadow and just just enjoy it.
0: Jen, do you think you're gonna be fashioning yourself a turban out of foil <laughs> over your paella do you know this what? Christmas Eve? I
4: actually if I could carry off a turban, don't think for a second I wouldn't be you know sporting one tomorrow but i think uh i just don't you because i know you said you can wear a turban with everything i just don't think you can wear one with a v-neck i just think you look great (laughs) there's something you just look i mean this is a podcast you can't possibly see how good you look you look absolutely fantastic (laughs) and i and i feel like a supply teacher who just got dressed in the dark
0: do you have a special christmas outfit Perhaps the Spanish dancing ladies, <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, flamenco dress castanets. comes out every
4: Christmas. Uh, no, I don't. Do do people is that a thing? Do people have a special? I have lots of special Christmas outfits. Steve, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't. You see, I'm not aware of this. Yeah, but, um, I have a,
0: a red velvet dress that I wear every Christmas on nice. Christmas Day. Nice. Yes, on Christmas Day. Do yeah. you? Yes. What, where do and you? And I wear- have a collection of Christmas brooches. <laughs> I'm oh. quite embarrassed of this.
2: But I love them. That's, I don't know why you're embarrassed. Yeah, that's I great. have
0: a really lovely one, which is a sledge packed with presents. That's oh, yes. that, that's not. Don't be embarrassed about that. That's great. Yeah. But I just feel like I'm about 189, and when I get my brooches out and pin them onto it's, my it, coat, it's, it's like really sorry,
2: old lady. <laughs> Madeline oh, yeah. Albright does that great thing with brooches, where she'll wear themed brooches into her negotiations. Oh, I love With that. Um, various different diplomats. And politicians. I did not know that. Look into it and think of her on Christmas Day when you get your Christmas breaks out. It's Albright fantastic. Albright would look great
0: in
4: this blouse. She would. She I'm would. rustling it down. So I'm
2: fabulous.
0: just worried. I'm worried
4: about sparks. I'm worried about health and safety.
0: <laughs> Amber, thank you so much. And before we finish this section, I want to ask you to think about a new tradition which you'd like to start, festive or not. And I'll ask you to reveal it at the end of the show. Our next guest suggested we meet at her house and being able to sneak a peek at other people's houses is one of the great joys of the things that I do, so I said yes immediately and here we are. I'm sitting here uh, in this beautiful home, uh, clearly the home of a child-free person, (laughs) beautifully scented, beautifully decorated. There are cats who are snuggling up to me and with me is writer, presenter and restaurant critic Grace Dent. For someone who once described herself as Queen of the Universe, it seems entirely fitting that she has since conquered all corners of the media. As well as presenting numerous documentaries for radio and television, she's the best-selling author of a series of novels for teenagers and a non-fiction book about Twitter. She's a columnist, a TV critic and her sharp eyed and frequently sharp tongued critiques of restaurants have earned her love, fear and respect in probably more or less equal measure. And on top of that, earlier this year, she's found time to create and launch London Food Month 2017, highlighting the very best of the city's food, from street food to fine dining. Hello, Grace Dent! Hello. Hello. So nice to finally meet you face to face.
1: So nice to meet you, and I feel like I know you. You're one of those people. Well, you're
0: very much one of those people that (laughs) you you have such a distinctive voice in your writing that I've been
1: reading you for years so. I feel like I have been around in the nation's heart for a long time you know when I <laughs> what I'm finding difficult to deal with right now is these young beautiful women adult women walking up to me in bars and restaurants and and, I, and they say can I just thank you for the books that you wrote when I was a child <gasps> oh that's so vicious you and should you just know kill them on exactly the spot. and you're not allowed to hit them
0: No, that's wrong. Like you're not allowed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Massive, just a karate chop to the windpipe. And like, no, it is nice, but yeah, it it kind of puts it into perspective. Well, just to make you feel uh, even older,
0: yeah. Our theme for this uh, is tradition because this is our Christmas edition. of We are women, and I'm wondering what makes you feel festive at this time of year, and whether you count yourself as a
1: Christmas traditionalist. This. Is, is the best part of Christmas, right? The beginning of December up until about the 16th is a magical time. You know, this is where you have your first mince pie at about three in the afternoon. You buy a box for people, then you get stuck in yourself, and you haven't had one for a long time. And it's just it's crisp outside, and there's parties to go to. And Christmas cards arrive. This is the best bit, I would say. It all goes down at about 18th, 19th when I'm generally just uh, back up north sitting in a house fighting with usually my little brother about where we're going to get goose fat or something like that because he'll have seen it on like a Delia Smith show and that like, this will be the one part of the year where everybody decides to be a foodie. Yes. Yeah, what are your festive food traditions? Oh, you know, I think that it should be quite simple and quite crap, you know. It should be Paxo stuffing and it should be... Uh, A turkey crown from Marks and Spencers. I like a tin of Quality Street. I like... Sorry, that's my cat. That's Gino. my cat, joining in. I like a tin of Quality Street. I like a green triangle. I like a glass of Baileys. I like a a glass of really, really awful wine drank on a back step whilst almost crying because one of your family's been around and um, insulted you. I like a kind of a Mike Lee Christmas. (laughs) Anybody... (laughs) But like I've got you know, I think that um you know, a working class Christmas should be a bit like that. This is where class really comes into it. It's this time of year that my friends start saying, Oh God, you know and we're just all getting together in this big house and everybody brings a poem. And we all we're all going to say the poem and then we all stand in the ingle nook and we all sing and say <laughs> just like
0: what? It's like a terrible edition no. of Peter's Friends. Is that what that film was yeah. called where they
1: did things like that? To yeah. me, uh, without being too glib, it is just about being together. That's all it is. It's just about. It's about enduring each other. And um, spending some time face, you know, face to face. Now I'm thinking that your day to day life yeah. is actually quite
0: festive year round because you get to eat out at other people's expense. <laughs> um, what are your favourite traditions of restaurant life?
1: Well, I his think cat is now licking me. If you can hear, yeah, it too, it's just—he's huh? um, just marinating you in case you die, and then he can begin the feast. <laughs> no, he does that. He comes over and he just licks you. Um, ritual. God, you know something? I I sometimes worry that I love restaurants more than I love food. They get you in your heart, in your soul, like as if an orchestra's just sort kind of... A boom, 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 ..started to play together, you know? Like when you walk in, you've got all the people that are standing around and they all say good evening, good evening, good evening and having your coat taken off you and whisked away with a sense of confidence that it's actually going to go somewhere and you'll get it back and then the little ticket arriving and sitting down and and sitting in a good table and there being that hubbub around you and um, the menus come in and the exact right amount of time, like the golden touch where they can come and speak to you without annoying you but at the same time don't ignore you and I could go on and on. This is it, I get so... But then, with regards to food, I do worry that I don't describe it enough because I find um, food description written down often a little bit icky. You know, I think that the minute that you start to read the descriptions, you kind of put in mind of the old-fashioned, old-school male. The consistency of this is absolutely disgusting, and it's you just become you can come across a little bit like Mr. Creosote. Does that make sense? (laughs) I've got it to. It makes perfect sense. I've got to start. And, and also, a thing as a woman, I'm trying to phase out is saying, does this make sense?
0: Okay. Does well, that make sense? That pen, but we're getting
1: there. <laughs> um, that's interesting you mentioned about the Mr.
0: Creosote thing. So you, you mentioned earlier about a favourite coat being too big for you.
1: Yes. Um, have you, like me, Grace, experienced weight loss <laughs> in li- later life? I, um, I'm, I'm thinner now at the moment. Um, because I'm running again And I am eating Very healthily again However I very rarely speak about my weight Not out of any great Feminist um, thing It's just that I I just always Put it back on Every time you know Like to stay at this weight uh, I have to watch everything that goes Into my mouth I have to exercise all of the time and I And the more I live in this zone The more I realise how it's actually almost impossible if you had three kids and you had a full-time job that didn't take you to the gym and you were trying to throw down dinner for five people a night and living on in restricted income and I do think all the time unless you make it a full-time job I don't know how you do it I don't know how you end well, up well, like... It must
0: be slightly easier if you don't have to dine out at restaurants all the time holy God, honestly. I, That must be almost impossible But this
1: is why I've, I've, I've kind of made the you know, I made a choice about a year ago, and I thought this this could really creep up, and also it will kill me. Like it will kill me. People go, well, "How? Well, how do you do it now? How do you how do you stay thin now?" And I think, well, I have to really think. Well, you're a food critic. You're there to be critical. You're not. Your job isn't a food demolisher. <laughs> it's like <laughs> that's not the 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 idea. Is you're meant to go in and have little bits and. Um, I also I want to live. I want to be still here, annoying people when I'm ninety because I'm getting really good at it. I'm getting really good at annoying people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, You're you
1: drawing a brilliant
0: portrait of yourself as a Marie Antoinette, both in terms of the rich living and the annoying people. And I'm thinking about that label. Uh, Queen of the Universe, that was linked to Twitter. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about that moment and the book deal that you got and the craziness around Twitter.
1: When I wrote that book, it was as a reaction to how Twitter had changed everything. It's quite strange now when I meet young women because I don't think they understand Uh, And why would they? What things were like even then, 2007, you know? There was never any women on QI. There was never any women on Have I Got News For You? I'd got to a point in my career where I was starting to see people like uh, Charlie Brooker, who I adore and respect and admire and is a friend, and people like David Mitchell. And it was like, what is it you want to do? Do you want a Radio 4 show? Do you want to to make a BBC4 documentary? I was sitting there thinking... I can't get arrested, you know? <laughs> and, like, Twitter came along, and it was it was this first point in my life where I could go, here's something I think about goths in 1980. Here's something I think about communism. Here's something I think about uh, Big Brother on television. Here's something I think about the Labour Party here's a really niche reference to something to do with periods. And it bang, 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 bang. And, like, the moment I started doing that, it went from, like, 1,000, 7,000, 20,000, 50,000. You know what I mean? And it just went up and up and up and up and up. And everything changed. Like, you know, I was getting asked on everything. And it was because it was like it had been this big shop window... Uh, and not just for me, you know. This sounds very personal. Like it, I'm talking about me. It was it was it was loads of women ra- round me, you know. And the public started saying it, and you know, all these places started to go. We can't just have an all an all man panel. So yeah, Twitter changed everything.
0: Where do you think we're up to with that now, though? Because yeah. now Instagram is so much more
1: the forum. You know, you blink and there's a new medium well, that people are using. Um, okay. Well, I I think Instagram is. Absolutely. It's peak at the moment. I, I am on there now. I think that Instagram causes mental health problems. Kind of, you should really be on there as, um, as a platform for what you do. However, the Insta is, it's not real life. You know, everything's very, very staged. Mm, Are you on Insta?
0: I am. Yeah. But I completely agree with you that the comparison sickness that it induces Mm. is really dangerous. Um, yeah. My sickness on there is for I, I've got to unfollow them all because I started following all these American vintage sites. Yeah, and they post the clothes that they've got for sale all yeah. of the time, and I just want yeah. all of them. It's a disaster.
1: Well, but do you bid? Do you? Do I you don't. I
0: I hold back, but then I feel this immense lack of all these things that I don't own, which is ridiculous because I have enough clothes to live for five hundred years.
1: <laughs> my sickness is eBay. A lot of nights, my happiest times. Are sitting out bidding other women in 20 pence incremental steps, shouting, Take that bitch. Like, literally, <laughs> take. You no, know, this is it. People people probably think I'm at the Ritz. <laughs> but that's
0: clearly, it's clearly a delight for you to feel that. Take that bitch. Take, literally, um,
1: take that. And you were, how you dare were saying you?
0: earlier about how you hope you'll still be annoying pe- at people when you're 90. <laughs> how important is it to you to be thought of as someone who doesn't have to be
1: nice? And how important do you think that is for women? I think it's incredibly important for most women every day to be thought of as nice. I think that I live in a media bubble sometimes surrounded by uh, equally bolshy women. And the minute I come out of London, I'm always saying to all the women up there, well, just tell them to F off, you know. <laughs> well, ask for some more money or we'll just quit. And people kind of look at me as if like, oh, well that flies in your world. But it flies in our worlds. I think that it's gonna it's gonna take a lot of women, if I'm just talking about Britain, across Britain a long time to realise that that you don't have to be popular. Do I care about what people think of me? No, because I know that I know that I'm a nice person. I know I am. So if somebody wants to see me on MasterChef saying that like I wouldn't feed their food to a A Labrador, then, (laughs) you know, like, if I don't care, like, that is pantomime and it's funny and it makes people laugh on BBC One. And if you can't see that in that context, I don't care.
0: Grace Dent, I believe that you are (laughs) a
1: nice person. And my wish for 2018 is may you fly in all worlds. Oh, darling, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I feel like I've been like a ranting maniac. I always feel like this is the end of interviews. Though I always go, maybe this time I should have just said that I love kittens. <laughs> 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 but I don't know. I think that I think that you know, women come to me all the time and say, oh, "I want to be you when I grow up," and I just go, "Well, then just don't grow up. Don't let people make you grow up. Don't let men take your dreams away from you because that's what they do. They okay, kind of go home and get divorced now. Thanks." Just get rid of him, mate. Honestly, you can, do it, you can do it online. You do it online. i tell you it's the best... Let's do it now. I've got my phone with me. All this stuff in bin bags. Just come here. I've got spare rooms. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Our
0: thanks to Grace Dent. Um, I'm very interested in the idea we were talking about there of women being nice. Traditionally, women have been expected to be more pleasant than men. Jen, do you think that's a bad thing? Where do you think we're up to with that?
4: Um, I think there is still that expectation. So if a woman gets angry, she's shrill and hysterical and needs to be calmed down. Whereas if a man gets angry, he's taking charge. He's taking control of the situation. So I think that idea of women being nice is is a part of knowing our place. You remember where your place is in society. Don't take a step above your station. And I, and I think we are claiming that back, as we should.
0: Yes, quite right too. Amber, you do lots of broadcasting. Does that occur to you sometimes, that you feel as if you have to be nice or say the right thing?
2: I often get brought on um, to... Like, for example, if I'm asked to do something like the Today Show on Radio 4, I'm never in, for, obviously, for a main story. I'm in for the slightly fun story at the end that has a fashion angle to it. Uh, And so you do find that sometimes with broadcasters of that ilk, I guess, there is a certain condescension that comes along with that, that I have to try to... deflect (laughs) somehow, Mm -hmm. I suppose. I'm picturing you instructing John Humphreys to wear a turban. I actually told him to try high heels last time I was on that show. (laughs) It's funny you say that. We were doing a whole piece, it was when women had to wear the high heels to work. Oh, yeah, I remember that story. Yeah, and we were doing a piece about that, and... um, he was like, you know, obviously I don't. This is nothing, nothing that I can sort of empathise with, having you know. And I was like, well, maybe you should just give it a go. Yeah, on Tim Curry looks great. Like.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now it is time to welcome our expert guest to the studio, Kate Watson Smythe, a journalist with a particular interest in interiors and design, as well as writing for the papers. Last year saw the publication of her first book, *The Very Elegant Shades of Grey. She also runs a successful design consultancy business, and her multi-award winning blog Mad About The House is an utterly addictive mix of inspirational, aspirational and down to earth Welcome Kate Watson-Smile Hi Please avail yourself of our Christmas goodies Kate, so you you like, like to talk chocolates. with a mouthful? Yes you can These are um, our producer Kate's fabulous festive fudge um, Anything you want to do We've got a whole panettone you can get yourself into there uh, What are your favourite festive traditions whether it's interiors or food
3: or anything I'm a bit grinchy about tradition I have to say in that I I don't really like being told what to do so I struggle with the concept of we're doing this because we've always done it having said that I've got children and I see how they like the markers of tradition and the signifiers that certain things are happening now, so it must be this time of year or this time of the week. So we all fall into traditions, even if we don't sort of mean to. We find ourselves... That was habits, isn't it, really? Mm. I've got I'm thinking you haven't got a Christmas brooch collection. Then. I... I haven't, but I could see that I might go for one, but I would probably want to wear it in January. I have a fabulous uh, sequin bag, which um, it's a, it's an old vintage Miu Miu one, and uh, I carried it proudly throughout January all this year, having not Taken it out at Christmas at all, um, and there were lots of sort of raised eyebrows, particularly from my mother who thought it was quite inappropriate for January yeah. on a Tuesday um, <laughs> in a country pub. It, it wasn't good, but I really enjoyed that.
2: But I think that's great. Like, if there's one month where you need something exactly sequenced to get you through, it's January. Right? I think so, right? definitely. Yeah.
0: Good tip Stay, save your Christmas sweaters until July. Well, heard, heard <laughs> <first. My laughs> God the weather would be fine for them in July here, so I don't think that'll be a problem. Okay, um, this. Thinking about interiors um, and thinking outside of tradition in terms of Christmas, in interiors it seems as if traditional is something that is frowned upon now and it's all about the latest thing and the latest trend and you've got to be minimalist and then you've got to be maximalist and then you've
3: got to have Scandi and how do you keep up with it all? I think the first thing to say at that point is that um, a lot of those trends are much slower to come and go than you might think. So I've been predicting the demise of copper for forever and it's still not dead. It won't lie down um, and it's taken a long time to come in and go out. So I don't think you really need to keep up with things as such. I think you need to work out what you like, refine what you like, and then you can bring in elements of fashion, as I guess you do with clothes, um, we've, there's been pineapples everywhere in interiors for the last couple of years. If you like pineapples, then, you know, have a, just a cushion on it, possibly even a sequin gold cushion with pineapples on, but you can get rid of it or move along. But when it comes to your actual main decor, we're not quite as quick to change. I'm only as... just realising about copper now. <laughs> I'm really behind the curve. Skip that, one. Skip that one. We're going yeah. straight to brass. Warm okay. metallics. And there are... There are changes that happen in interiors um, which are very much affected, I think, by what's going on in the world outside. And we have at the moment, there is definitely a, a move. I'm not going to say Scandi's over, but it's slightly been elbowed out by a new mood of sort of luxury and comfort. It's cocooning and it's nesting. And home is a big word at the moment. Dulux just revealed its colour of the year and it was all about creating a cosy home and a place where we feel safe and I think The world is a little bit uncertain at the moment. People are nervous about what's going on. So we're now looking very much at velvet sofas and jewel colours and making it look warm and cosy. So that's definitely a a look that's coming in, but it might be Mm. here for a while.
0: When it comes to interiors, do you think people can make up their own rules or are there certain guidelines that you can follow? I I try to follow the guidelines on your Instagram feed, I have to say. (laughs) Something new, something old, something black and something gold. Is that right? that
3: is right. It doesn't have to be gold. It just has to be shiny, um, which will bounce the light around and also bring in that element of luxe and everything that, that just helps a room look together. And also black will give it a bit of edge and a bit of drama. It's the same as dressing yourself. I don't think there are rules in that there aren't necessarily rules in how you dress yourself. But I think you need to really think about what you like. And I think you really need to think about who you are. I have lots of clients who tell me they want to spend all this huge amounts of money on their kitchen and they want this range cooker. And then you, you find out that they don't actually cook, but they think that's what they ought to have. So it's very much about asking yourself, who is this room for? So you see people that are particularly attracted to a to a button back sofa, Chesterfield or something, but actually what they want is a sofa where they can all lie around snarfing popcorn and watching telly. So the reality of who they are and who they want to be isn't quite the same thing. So I, when I try and help people with their houses, I would encourage them to, to look at that rather than... Uh, any particular rules which may not work for them
4: It's a black hole isn't it, decorating your house I mean, I mean, just, just looking after your house but when you start, I mean you could go on forever couldn't you, but just I think on you, and on
3: the, the other thing, in my little rhyme, um, something old there's a sort of great move now towards ethical interiors and that does mean we should take responsibility and look at where our stuff is made and where it comes from in a way that we've now got more used to doing with clothes but that also means sort of using old furniture i've denuded my mother's house practically nothing in it it's all in mine in the name of sort of upcycling and recycling oh, No wonder well, she and was that... angry about the sequin well, <laughs> possibly <laughs> <laughs> sitting on the orange boxes in the corner <laughs> um, and i think you know you can so it can be a money pit but i've picked up great bargains over the years i've a fantastic bedside table which i found in the road. Ironically we were on our way back from the tip having got rid of lots of stuff. Um, and then I saw the table. Stop the car. To my husband when we got that. So um, so it doesn't have to cost huge. And tins of paint, there are obviously those very expensive ones that are dead mice and rotting salmon colours and things, but um, there is also much cheaper paint. Uh, What does it mean for you, the the value of the old? Well, I, I like the idea of having old things because I do think they bring character and personality, and I always say, you know, it's great to have your granny's old chair or possibly someone else's granny's old chair, um, because that piece of furniture comes with a story. And recently I was at a client's house and she had two fabulous old leather chairs uh, which were completely mullered along the arms and all the leather had ripped. And she'd had quotes for doing them up and, and re-upholstering them. And we were talking about it and, and I thought, if she reupholsters those chairs, then the essence of that chair has gone. But... If there was a way of retaining the the essence of that chair, then you could see that it was a much-loved piece that she'd inherited. So we decided the thing to do, because the seat and back was all right, was to actually very obviously patch the arms so that you could see it had been patched and re-loved and was carrying on into the next part of its life with all its history still intact. What about Christmas decorating? Is that something that fills you with horror? I don't do a huge amount of it um, and I was that woman who let the children do it and then when they'd gone to bed just might have rearranged it to touch. I'm a horrible control freak. And I just like adding lots of... Lots of soft lighting. I've got a friend who's uh, Swedish and she puts fairy lights up on about the 1st of December. And I just think, why? It's too early. I can't bear it. I don't even want to hear the word. And she said, but it's so miserable in December that actually having lots of soft lights dotted around mirrors and wound-up banisters just makes everything look nicer and a bit of real fir tree wound up the banisters or something. So I quite like that idea of sort of natural but... Monochrome is very me. I don't really do tinsel. It's hard no. to
4: avoid tinsel with children. They love tinsel. They don't do they? love they tinsel. Love all the and scary- they like the
3: purple tinsel that looks like the quality
2: Street. Yeah. They love a bit of it. My mum used to always try to do a kind of minimalist, sophisticated Christmas. Me and my brother were not having any of it. Every year she'd be like, I was thinking we could do, go with just one colour, like have just silver or just white. We'd be
3: like, nah. Forget it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we have got decorations which. I suppose, have become slightly traditional. I perhaps would buy one or two new ones each year, and we do have the ones that the boys made at nursery that we hang on the tree. So I like... I, I wouldn't change my decorations every year or go with a fashion or a colour. It's just I like that idea that you get them out of the box once a year. Mm-hmm. Although I did lose them one year, we had to go away for Christmas i couldn't find
0: them (laughs) (laughs) well we've we've unleashed your tradition you did have one after all now kate thank you so much this isn't really fair on you as the others have had lots more time to think about this but can i ask you to come up with one new tradition you would like to start it can be Christmassy, but it doesn't have to be i would like to introduce a tradition where everyone has to have a collection of christmas brooches and obviously, I would have a head start. Yeah, you're winning. So aren't my you? Yeah. my collection. Hang on would a second, you're in the lead else by else. about <laughs> exactly. That's the whole point. <laughs> and there would be some kind of international prize, but the prize would have to be a very large brooch.
4: You have to collect brooches, yes. and then the prize is a brooch for you. Yes. Yes. You've won. So that is yes. the bizarrest tradition i've ever heard everyone buy everyone a brooch in the hope of winning a brooch
0: <laughs> that is my ideal competition <laughs> oh, okay all right yeah, yeah i quite if, like it yeah
4: um i'd like to create a tradition whereby we all donate something to our local food bank every year without even thinking about it it's not let just an accepted tradition that that's what we do
2: i think that's a brilliant idea it's not as good as the brooch idea it's, <laughs> it's,
4: listen and also you can if you want to donate
0: That is allowed. Okay, I love this fusing. Amber, what's your tradition?
2: Well, I'm really struck by that food bank idea. I think that's fantastic. And it reminded me of a tradition when I was really young at school. I don't know if it still happens at schools. I remember celebrating Harvest Festival. Because clearly I went to school in the Wicker Man.
4: No, no. No, we had (laughs) no idea that And (laughs) And you donated what was ever in the back of your mum's cupboard. Yeah, Yeah.
2: and then there's a huge collection of stuff at school. And then it all gets divided up and you take it to an elderly neighbour. So I remember doing that every year. And if that still happens at school, fantastic. But I would like to add another one of those to Christmas... Giving to people that aren't just friends or family should be built into Christmas traditions, oh, So
0: you've all yeah. said really altruistic things and I've said something really selfish. <laughs> Kate, what's your
3: tradition? I'm probably going with you. Um, I think there are certain places in Italy where we've been on holiday where we've got friends who, through the month of August, she is allowed to finish work at lunchtime every day in their company so that in, so they can go to the beach. So I think in the winter, when it gets dark early, I think we should all be allowed to finish work on a Friday lunchtime and go home and light the fire, and it should be sort of family time. That's a great tradition. That sounds amazing,
4: except if you're a stand-up comedian and it makes absolutely no difference to your, work, your
3: working <laughs> life. No, nor all. mine, because I work from home, But so it's complete fantasy. <laughs> uh, finish work early and put
0: your brooch on. That's our message. <laughs> now, we've reached the end of this podcast. Please tweet at Mint Velvet or come to the Mint Velvet Facebook page. And tell us what advice you would give to another woman. That's our traditional question. Do please subscribe to We Are Women via Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And do rate and review us because it makes us happy and helps others to find us. We Are Women will be back at the end of December. But in the meantime, my thanks to guests Jen Brister, Amber Butchart, Grace Dent and Kate watson Smythe. We Are Women is a Whistledown production for Mint Velvet. The producer is Kate Taylor. I'm Viv Groskop, and I think we can just about get away with saying Happy Christmas, thanks for listening, and goodbye.